I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, listeners. Since you can't come to the London Review Bookshop at the moment to enjoy our events, we're bringing them to you at home. While we're closed, our new podcast episodes will feature guests who you might, under better circumstances, have been listening to live in Berry Place, as well as previously unreleased gems from our archives. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Can you all hear me all right? This is working. And you're all relatively comfortable. There's air conditioning. It's okay. It's been a rough day. Thank you for coming in this ridiculous heat. Um, We're so pleased to have three wonderful speakers here tonight. Um, In the context of this project that we launched at the University of Liverpool um, at the Centre for New and International Writing, which I co-direct with Sandy Palmer and David Herring, who are elsewhere this evening. Um, But two of my lovely colleagues are sitting there, and um, that's Sam and Emma, and they can talk to you about this afterward if you have questions. Um, So we launched this project called Citizens of Everywhere early this year with an essay by Tom in The Guardian. Um, Basically, we were sitting around and watching all of these catastrophic things happening uh, in the UK, the US, where I'm from, um, and thought, we have to do something. What can we do? What can be done? Um, So we founded this project to directly engage with this idea. I guess I'm going to say it again, this idea that Theresa May um, articulated in which she reframes ideas of citizenship Um, claiming, quote, if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. Okay, I've said it. Now that's done and we can move on. Um, So we saw that ridiculous statement as a call to arms to launch a multidisciplinary project aiming to generate dialogue and response to recent political shifts in Europe and America. So through a series of public events, commissioned pieces of writing, workshops, and creative engagements with schools, the project aims to address a range of issues, including challenges to national borders, the free movement of populations and identity, definitions of citizenship, as well as the migrant crisis, turbulent geographies, trauma, internationalism in the age of globalization, and the role of the sciences and humanities in a changing world. So, you know, we've got our work (laughs) cut out for us. Um, So we've engaged artists, scientists, academics, writers, cultural organizers, and beyond to broaden and debate what citizenship means today. So as I mentioned, we launched with a piece by Tom in The Guardian um, on how Theresa May needs to read her Aeschylus. 
Um, we continued with essays by George Shirtees and Sandy Palmer, among others, and concluded with a piece by Will Self. Um, and the project has also published work in Freeze, The White Review, The Conversation, and the TLS. So tonight's event, um, held on World Refugee Day, a few days off from the one-year anniversary of the Brexit referendum, just a few days after the one-year anniversary of the horrific murder of Joe Cox, it feels like an important moment to come together and think through some concrete ways of responding to these ideas about citizenship and identity and what they mean and how we might respond really kind of um, pragmatically and concretely to the current climate of political um, anxiety and potentially hope. We were having a very hopeful kind of conversation downstairs just before this. Um, so I think we're going to hear first very briefly from each of our speakers. Um, we'll talk a little bit together. But I think we might go a bit rogue and depart from this format where we talk for 45 minutes and then you guys get to talk for 15 and kind of open it up to the floor a bit earlier so we can have more of a group discussion, if that's all right with everyone. Um, Tom, over to you. I guess I've been invited here as a, as a novelist and I was going to say some general things about literature but it's a hot night and there's much more interesting people here so I'm just going to jump straight to I guess the question I've been really asked to address which is uh you know what I feel my citizenship as a novelist is and the answer is really simple European by which I absolutely don't mean that I feel European in some ethnic or tribal way but I mean it in the sense that that my work feeds off and finds its form within an archive that has a very particular history, right? Modern literature, modern uh, Western, in inverted commas, it's a problematic term, but let's stick with it. Modern Western literature happens because of the febrile discovery, rediscovery in the late 15th, early 16th century of basically of, of the Greek, the Greco-Latin archive of the corpus or of fragments of it. And the whole landscape of literary modernity kind of arises out of that discovery, out of this reanimation, transformation, translation into various vernaculars of that archive. So, you know, when you read Shakespeare, what you're actually reading is this wonderful hybrid kind of mongrel remix of, uh, you know, Plato, Ovid, Lucretius, all kind of jumbling together. Um, Shakespeare is actually full of of, of hybrid mongrel words that didn't even exist in English before, you know, before, before Shakespeare. I mean, the archive is so powerful, it just transforms the, the kind of, if you like, the host culture beyond recognition. So, so modern literature, right from, the, from its beginnings, entails this extraordinary set of migrations. So the notion that the kind of English-British heritage industry tried to foist on us of Shakespeare as expressing some inherent eternal soul of Englishness is absolute nonsense. You know, it's, it, it's, it's completely, you know, think of Shakespeare's Venice in The Merchant of Venice or Othello. This, this is a massively global, you know, interzonal, far-flung space, polyglossal, polynational, polyethnic, and so on. And line by line, it's, it's a far-flung multinational space of the page with many other, you know, it's a space of multiple migrations. And this holds through all the way through to late modernity. When you read Joyce, you know, Joyce's Dublin is similarly a space which is as much, you know, as much um, Gibraltar and Gaza as it is you know, Dublin in any Irish sense. And of course, it's written in Paris, <laughs> this wonderful kind of hybrid, again, interwar, interzone, international space. So 
the Irish heritage industry is actually as guilty as the English one of trying to claim Joyce as some kind of son of the soil, where in fact he had to leave this rather narrow-minded nationalist country in order to, you know, write in the first place. So I just want to make two quick points. Um, the first one, you know, having claimed this kind of primal Greekness or Greece 2.0-ness, it's important to understand that, that um, Hellenic Greece, like ancient Rome, is actually, was actually geographically, it comprised a huge area all around the Mediterranean basin. And the places in North Africa and what, you know, in, in, in Tunisia and what's now Syria weren't just kind of colonial outposts. These were major generative hubs where, where major writers and philosophers came from. So if, to be European is to be Greek, then to be European is already to be African and to be Middle Eastern. As Martin Bernal points out, Athena was probably black, right? That's important. The second point, which is kind of connected to this, which is very much to do with citizenship and, and that central Greek motif, hospitality. And this is kind of rehearsing what I wrote for you in The Guardian, but forgive me if you've read it already, because it's kind of quite relevant, I think, to what we're discussing tonight. I want to home in on one particular Greek play, which I think is extremely relevant to our moment, which is Aeschylus' Oresteia from 458 BC. Um, it's actually three plays. It's a, it's a trilogy. Um, but it's important because it kind of builds the conceptual framework that's more or less still operative now, within which we think about what democracy is, what, what modern participatory democracy is. And it's this, like I said, it's a three-part play full of murders and revenge and tit-for-tat and tat-for-tit and killings back and forth, on and on and on. It's like an endless episode of EastEnders or whatever, or Dallas. But the third part, the, the Eumenides, is, is, is I think what interests us here. And, and at the beginning of that play, Orestes, the son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, turns up at the gates of Athens uh, demanding sanctuary demanding to be taken in as a refugee. And, uh, and he's followed by the Furies, um, who, who are demanding, you know, who wants his blood, because he's killed his mother, and they want to avenge her. And all the kerfuffle brings the goddess Athena onto stage, um, and she says, you know, what's going on here? And everyone kind of explains it. So the Furies say, well, look, Orestes must be punished. He's killed his mother. This is dreadful. And... Uh, Orestes, or rather Apollo, you know, being the lawyer for Orestes, says no, but he had to kill his mother because she killed the father, and da da da, da. And it gets very complicated. And, and what's interesting is, is it's dialogic, right? Aeschylus um, is the first person to introduce this, this dialogic form of tragedy. So both sides actually have quite a good point. They've both got a strong case. Um, and Athena realizes the stakes are pretty high here because she has to give sanctuary, custom demands it. But if she doesn't respect the Furies, they'll lay waste to her city. And so she has this radical and completely out-of-the-blue, unprecedented idea, which is that 12 of the wisest inhabitants of Athens should, instead of her, they should hear the case, and they should retire, debate among themselves, and come to a decision. And whatever decision they come to is almost by the by. The point is this structure is going to hold forth in Athens and all the way through to London and everywhere else to the present day. So it's an important moment. And when Orestes is acquitted and goes back to Argos to resume his throne, 
Athens establishes good trade and military fraternity between Athens and, and Argos. And also Athena finds a space within the city, within the polis, the political space for the, the defeated Furies and, and appeases them. So the point is that she doesn't... It's not like Athena just kind of takes Orestes into an order that's already established, like Angela Merkel saying, okay, we've got space for a few more. I mean, it's commendable what she's doing, but, but what Athena's doing is something much more radical. Athena completely reconfigures the political structure of Athens in relation to not just one, but two sets of outsiders. It's not like we have an order, you can come into it. It's your presence demands a complete rethinking of what we are and how we operate. And in doing this, she produces democracy. Okay, democracy only happens through that um, hospitality, which is also a radical reconfiguration. Um, as Simon Critchley, my friend, the philosopher, points out, discussing the Oresteia, he says, a city, a polis, for us a nation-state, only is through a dialogical relation to the foreign and the foreigner. So when Noren asked me to write about this for The Guardian, I tried to argue that Theresa May, it's not just that she's wrong, she's exactly wrong. She couldn't be more perfectly wrong. <laughs> if you're not a citizen of everywhere, you're not a, even a citizen at all. You're not even a citizen, you're just a subject. And I think this... Yeah. this um, if I had one piece of executive power that I could kind of, you know, one law that I could pass, it would be that anyone that's making a legislative decision about citizenship be forced to read the Oresteia, because I think it's exactly um, deals with this, this, this kind of question at a time now when, when we're kind of teetering on the edge between tyranny and democracy. Um, so that's all I'll say at the moment. Thank you. So, Shami, how about it? Can you take the word back? Um, my first question, but you don't have to answer it now, is is that the Aeschylus trilogy that also includes women should stay in the home? And No, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but there, anyway, it, it may be another play. I, you know, I, I, um, I didn't have the benefits of a classical education, but I loved what I heard. And it's all to do with the translators, isn't it? It's it, my view. Um, I am here because... Why am I here? I'm here because I had the benefits of a great state education, zero tuition fees, no debt, all of that stuff that I'm now completely vowed to dealing with for the next generation. Because I turned 48 on the day that Joe Cox... The, the, the anniversary of Joe Cox's death. Right? My birthday is her death day. And that will never leave my mind. And so on Friday, I turned 48. And every life chance I've ever had came from a different consensus and a consensus that I believe that we can achieve again in this country, on this continent, on this planet. And I really believe it. Why do I believe it? Because I'm not so clever. I'm really not so clever. If I have these values and we can share these values, we can communicate them and get a fair hearing, I believe they resonate with lots of people. And that's all I'm going to say about this way so shocking, surprising general election result. Take hope.
my friends. Now, to go back to the central tenet, which is citizens of everywhere, what choice do I have? I'm the daughter of migrants to this country. There are all sorts of people in this country who have never quite thought that I was quite the thing, right? Let's be honest. There are people, not least in our great British free press, which I defend, and on certain streets at certain times in my life, there are people who've gone, who the hell does she think she is? She's not one of us. And yet, this is the country in which I was born. It's the only country in which I've lived for any significant time. I go to Scotland, talk to Scott Maps, and they go, but Shami, you're so English. <laughs> right? I'm like, no, but, but you're white and I'm brown. Right? So this is what I believe. I believe in multiple identity. Not as a political program, but as my best assessment of the truth about human beings. The most important bit of my identity is human. And then there are, of course, there are other ties that bind. Some of us in this room are women. Some of us are men. Some of us are parents. Some of us are grandparents. Some of us are lawyers. Some of us are vote this way, vote that way. Some of us are great novelists. Some of us are not. But the most important piece of this puzzle is that we are human. And this is a shrinking, interconnected world. Now, why is internationalism okay for Rupert Murdoch, but not for a refugee? Right? Why should internationalism as a concept only be globalization? Why is internationalism only for money and markets and organized crime and international terrorism and not for ordinary human beings and their values and their aspirations? Now, that's not to negate the other ties that bind. We're in t- it's fine to have little clubs and little communities of faith and of nationality and of gender and of so on and so on, as long as we don't make the definitions too rigid and we don't draw the lines in the sand too deeply and too often. I will finish with, with two little metaphors for identity. And forgive me if they're a little bit crass. But I want to be brief. And sometimes brief equals crass. Two options, just two, not 15, not 99.7. Two options for identity, says Chakrabarti pompously at the London Review of Books. Right? It's a parlour game. Just play with me. Right? Proposition number one, the military checkpoint of identity. Where people turn up, I'm sorry you're looking so pained, but it'll, it'll be happy in the end, I promise you, right? The military checkpoint of identity. People turn up and someone stands there, someone official decides whether you pass or you don't pass, whether you're one of us or not, right? Let me see your papers. Maybe I stop and search you, maybe I strip search you, maybe I ask you some questions. In certain parts of the world, I'm literally looking at men's genitals to decide whether they pass or they do not pass, right? The military checkpoint of identity. A completely alternative, slightly bourgeois, liberal metaphor for which I can be mocked. I don't mind. I put it in my first book, right? The supermarket checkout. We're leaving in an hour or half an hour, whenever we're leaving, and you go to a little 
Tesco, Metro, wherever, and you want to pick up a few things before you go home on this boiling hot evening. Mineral water, I suspect. Anyway, whatever you're picking up. And you stand in the queue. It's a bit of a queue. And people are looking at you and they're checking you out and deciding who you are by what's in your basket. Right? They're just checking you out. You're going to go and you're going to buy and you're going to choose. And maybe one day it's a, a bottle of wine. Maybe another day it's a can of ale. One day it's a... A curry ready meal. The next day it's blue cheese. And people are standing there, they're bored, they're making judgments about you. Who are you? What kind of person? Where do you come from? What do you. But at least you get to choose, and at least you get to change, and at least it isn't a line in the sand, and it's not oppression. Now, of course, the flaw in my argument is you need to afford the goods in your basket. But I believe in self definition. And I believe in solidarity across different borders. I don't believe in the powerful telling the meek that they will be divided and ruled. And I don't believe in this manipulation of faith and race and identity and nationality that has been going on for too long. And that's what I think I aspire against. And that's what I think this wonderful project ought to be all about. Thank you. Thank you, Shami. That's brilliant. I'm like, amen, sister. Um, I, I think maybe it would be interesting for the, for the three of you to respond to what you've each said, or I can dry out certain ideas. I mean, it, everything that I kept hearing in the beginning, it, 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 we moved from dialectics, like a, or sort of binary of yes or no, to dialogic, <laughs> to sort of multiplicity and, and, you know, choose your own identity. So I think that was actually a really interesting kind of arc. But I wonder if you had anything to respond to in each other's statements. Well, dia- dialogics would be about um, a lack of con- consensus, which is good. Um, I mean, the, the philosopher Claude Lefort defines democracy as radical ambiguity or radical ambivalence. So it's not something you reach. It's not a consensus that you all agree on. It, it's a structure where radically incompatible views can, can kind of jostle around. In- Relative peace, we hope, yeah? Yeah, in relative peace. I mean, you know, aggressively, but, 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 but you know, without exterminating each other. Yeah. Um, so that, that's what I'd kind of understand yeah. by dialogics. Something that literature and democracy maybe have in common Absolutely. is ambiguity, irresolvable, unresolvable. Yeah. So Derrida gets his idea of democracy from Malamé's idea of the book, which is something always and inherently to come. Like, there's nowhere where you can say they finally got democracy, not even Sweden, right? Like, <laughs> if you could say, this is it, we've got democracy now, then you haven't, you've got fascism, yeah, you know, yeah. because you've got totality. So, so it's always about that, that kind of two-comeness, So it's right? almost more about how we treat each other in the... Co- Sometimes it's almost how we treat each other in the conversation that yeah. becomes as important as... I mean, don't get me wrong, there's important policy that has to be established, which is part of how we treat each other too. But when I see anybody of whatever political persuasion be so nasty, to be blunt, as you sometimes see in recent election campaigns or whatever kind, I'm not talking about being, you know, being um, robust and... 
being critical. I'm talking about the nasty politics of personal annihilation. I'm like, whoa, this is a little bit off the democratic spectrum. One of the things that um, I was reflecting on when I heard Tom and Shami is I feel like the last year in particular has been uh, potentially this this struggle to not be binary and mm. and a struggle of multiple identities coming forward. Now I I feel that very personally as well and, and it was the it was the aftermath of Joe Cox's murder, who I'm really proud to have called a very close friend of mine, that actually propelled me to work on this mad thing, Brexit. Um, yeah. Uh, um, but one of the things that I felt really strongly was that I'm from Hull originally, very working class background. Um, just saying how <laughs> if I went 50 quid in the Red University, mm. I had palpitations. Um, so I nearly didn't take up an internship in the US because I wouldn't take out a student loan until my brother started swearing at me and calling me ridiculous. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, but coming from Hull, then having had these opportunities to work abroad and work in Brussels in the European institutions, which, by the way, are pretty flawed, but they're also not bad either. Like, and, and again, we're, in this country, we're always sold these like, very opposing views of everything. Um, and it is possible to be um, all these different things, to be international and to be hyper-local yeah. as well. Yeah. And the idea that there has to be a choice and there has to be a box that you willingly put yourself in um, as a London liberal or a bawdy northerner or a internationalist um, elitist is yeah. is ridiculous and I think that you know that, that's that's what some elements of our ruling classes and yeah. the media yeah. it's what they feel comfortable with and it's very sad really but we have to push against that because until we realize that and until we uh, demonstrate that people's multiple identities are exactly what makes them richer and what make our country richer then we're going to have this crisis of citizenship that I think we've seen over the last year. How do we push against that? Well, I think, I think it's about speaking out for what we believe in. I think one of the, um, again, I'm talking very much in the kind of Brexit frame because it's what I've been immersed in, but I think one of the scariest things about the last year has been the, until now, the, the sort of silence and the... the um, the way that a lot of politicians, a lot of people in the media, a lot of um, figureheads didn't feel able to speak out about what they believed, whether it's on Brexit um, or on some political issues, because of the tenor of the debate around all of that. And I think we're seeing that change now. And I think the election result, you know, evens things out and, and has sort of opened up a space for people to occupy again. But I think that space was already there to be occupied. People just, it was like this race to the bottom where everybody was looking at each other. And we have to, you know, occupy that space, keep talking, keep our voices heard, whatever it is that we want. And I think, the, you know, the Grenfell Tower um, tragedy as well, that kind of disconnect between the poor people that lived in that tower and, you know, what seems to have been a really dysfunctional relationship on the face of it with their local council and all of that, the, 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 it's, it's something's brewing in this country, and I think it has been for a long time, 
And I think people empowering themselves and empowering each other to speak up is is the best way we can cut through a lot of those problems. Responses, or shall we open things up? Open yeah, up. we're going to yeah. open it up. Okay, um, we're going to need someone to come around with the microphone. I officially am signing off. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, that's really an amazing talk. Thank you very much. And... Um, I was very glad that Shamim mentioned education because I think that um, the way that this government and the last government have brought in these tuition fees is kind of like a control. And it's going to, because I didn't, I wasn't educated until I was 50 uh, because I had a big family to bring up. And if you don't know code words, people don't listen to you and you can't return a conversation. And it's not just that, the thought of debt. So many decent people say to their children, don't get debt, just get on with life. Well, that's fine, but it's not. Anyway, so you know, anything you want me to do about education, I'll be there. <laughs> Hello. Um, lovely to meet you all. Um, I'm a medic. Um, I see vulnerability every day. And what strikes me in amongst what, you're, what you've all spoken about is this sense of, yes, globalization, but I think we've got to a point where we've forgotten, as Shami said, how to be human. And if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of need, actually some of those foundational concepts, which is around you know, people feeling a sense of uh, security, self-esteem, nurture, love, all of these very basic needs have been lost and my concern is when you pitch it to a global platform, actually, how do we reinstill those things in our future generation? Because I walked through Grenfell this weekend. I don't believe the media are portraying exactly what's going on on the shop floor. And actually, a lot of that is fear and it's rejection and it's abandonment. And I'm just wondering how we can bring this into some of the publicity that you're, you're bringing to the, to the table here. Hi there. Thank you very much for your uh, introductions. I just wanted to address uh, British identity a little bit because I don't think it was really brought out um, in the beginning. Maybe a bit of a, a defence of British identity, which is surprising for me to say. But um, I, I mean, I think one of the ways that I felt <coughs> betrayed by Theresa May's um, citizens of 
everywhere, citizens of nowhere thing was, I think it fundamentally uh, misunderstood, or actually misunderstood what it was to be British, particularly if you don't, if you grew up in Scotland or Northern mm. Ireland or Wales, it's kind of demanded of you to have multiple identities. Yeah. And you're Scottish and British, or your parents are from two different parts of the country, and you can do so without any form exactly. of contradiction, which is why I guess it was always very easy for me to understand why it was to be a citizen of Europe, as well as being British and being Scottish. Yeah. And I feel that part of uh, what has led us down the road of the kind of current politics and, and Brexit is there seems to be um, an issue around identifying what it is to be British now. There's a kind of form of British nationalism or even kind of English nationalism that um, is yet to be defined uh, or people have yet to find their identity in this you know, more modern age. Um, and I do worry somewhat that if you go down these the kind of the road of selling citizens of everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. without addressing what it is to be British, that you're kind of vacating that space to the far right to define yeah. that. All right. Uh, my name is Raoul. I'm an academic. I'm working on a project. Hold it close. Um, my name is Raoul. I'm an academic, uh, sort of like uh, I'm affiliated with uh, St. Anthony's College in Oxford, and I'm working on a project on European... Uh, really close, sir. I'm working on a project on European integration. All right. Um, I've just been following this citizenship debate, and I find it a little bit interesting. And, of, of course, I also use the opportunity to get to know Shami Sakrabati personally. Um, if you follow in the two elections that we witnessed in Europe, one of Greece, that was the austerity, democracy, democratization of uh, the Greek uh, economic problem, uh, the Greeks did vote overwhelmingly to sort of like democratize. They didn't say it openly, but to sort of like democratize the European economy, which is of course not democratic at all, if you know. And if you see this uh, recent election in Britain, which the British also vote to leave Europe, was a kind of a protest against the economic injustices that is actually going on within the European system and at the global level. So don't you think these two yeah. democratic fallacies uh, buys more into the nationalist ideal because it sort of like tells us that if the Democrats or the liberal Democrats cannot deliver, then the nations will have to reawaken themselves again. Don't you think this is, this is a awakening call for... It's over to you. Shall I die? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, so, have at it. Just before I forget, because I suspect I'm the oldest lady at this top table. So, in a nutshell, I think I pretty much agree with every single sentiment expressed. And, that, and my take on it is as follows. Proposition number one, I believe in, in representational, representational democracy and not having referenda every five minutes, to be honest with you, because these yes, no, black, white conversations are not the kind of cam conversations that work very well for me in a room like this in my living room you know they have there's no nuance there's no balance there's in out yes no scotland uk europe and things that are bubbling away under the surface can never be dealt with and in my mind they feed into this whole divide and rule strategy 
which in the end is about some very rich and powerful people on the planet, gods on Olympus. They don't need passports. They don't need nationality. Does anybody, can anyone tell me what Rupert Murdoch's nationality is right now? Right? I'm sure that I'm sure it's multiple. I'm sure it's multiple identity, right? These people in the first class lounges and on the Learjets, trust me, my friends, nationality is not a problem for them. It's a problem that they inflict on the rest of us to keep us busy hating each other. But I must to, to my, no, but to my Scottish, my Scottish friend has a point because I'm not about ironing out people's local and national connections and cultures any more than I would take children away from their families. We are human. We are individual creatures. We are creatures of family and locality and nationality and society. All of these things matter. So just as I don't want us to be divided and ruled, I don't want the differences to be ironed out. I just want them to be something of interest and celebration and conversation rather than something for hate and and war. And the whole English-Scottish thing is fascinating to me. I happen to believe that I have lived my privileged life in this country as a daughter of migrants for 48 years because of the inherent diversity of these islands because of exactly the point that you raised. I happen to believe that with all our problems in the UK, we are better at race relations than almost anywhere, if not anywhere in Europe, because of this inherent complexity, because of people in the same family who will support different rugby and football teams in good part, right? Because of Scotland and England and Wales and 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 rubbing along together and learning to do that, learning to live not over decades but centuries with multiple identity, telling the jokes, having the sporting differences, but rubbing along together and being capable of being Scottish or English or British Asian or whatever it is and still being part of this thing called Britishness. And I don't think there is a Britishness that isn't internationalist as well. That's why we don't do burqa bans and hijab bans, even though people are prepared to do it all over continental Europe, because we kind of have this thing, this kind of sense of it without even articulating it. And because the struggle for religious freedom was part of the struggle for democracy in these, in these islands. And to the, to the medic, you're so right. We have to do this, not in abstract, global, international, political, philosophical terms. It has to be real at the community level. And that, that horrible fire, it's almost its horrible, but it's a metaphor for everything that's wrong on this planet, let alone in this country. And I will shut up, but I will say this. There are old-fashioned word, words in this world. The Muslims call it Ummah. The Christians call it fellowship. The socialists call it solidarity. In the intimate sphere, we call it love. We call it friendship. We call it community. We just need to make this real in our policy and our practice. Thank you. Um, do we want to take a few more comments from the crowd? We've got a couple more minutes, yeah? I think there are a few more people who wanted to. Hi. Um, I was just going to say that what I found interesting about Brexit was um, a statistic that I read, which was that people who had most familiarity with immigrants voted to stay. 
and people who were unfamiliar, didn't have a lot of people who were immigrants in their communities, voted to leave, even if it was against their best interests. And I find that, that idea that you need to have community, you need to have knowledge, you need to have fellowship with people who are not exactly like you is, is, is really probably the only way that we're going to find a way to solve a lot of these problems. Several people have mentioned the word education, and that's what I also wanted to talk about. But it's all very well to say education. One of the interesting things about the latest farcical election was, was the fact that more younger people seem to vote in ways that I suggest many people in this room would support. But what in practical terms can education, can we do as far as educating the young to, to understand the principles that you, Shami, have so beautifully articulated? Because that seems to be lacking in an awful lot of our communities. Um, yes, the thing that um, struck me most forcefully about um, Brexit and its aftermath was the comments from one of the Brexiteers that the Brexiteer argument was based on principles of psychological warfare, psyops, as it was called. Now, this struck me as an extraordinary statement because... To use psyops, uh, psychological warfare on your own people, isn't that treason? Isn't that an act of war? And beyond that, the debate seemed to be a negation of the point that they considered themselves patriots. How can they be patriotic if they're using these kind of techniques when they said they wanted an open, fair discussion of the pros and cons of Brexit, when in fact they behaved in exactly the reverse. If you can bear it, I'm a little less nervous now, I think. Um, I think our political system is very based in a kind of public school debate thing, where politicians stand up and yell at one another, rudenesses, somebody was saying about politeness, and... I think that's one of our problems. I went to a lecture with David Willits on, on education, which nearly gave me a coronary. Um, <laughs> he, was just, he was just so aggressive. And poor Marina Warner, who was the other half from Burbeck, was struggling with this, this thing going on. And he brought out his argument on statistics. And um, somebody in the audience stood up and said, well, I think most of the people in this audience know that statistics can be turned around to suit whatever you want. So, you know, he was, he was absolutely tied in knots, and he, it was, you know. But anyway, I just think we've got to get rid of that way of arguing and put in uh, part. Very brief point. Isolationism tends to breed radicalism. How do you bring people out of isolation into the community? Uh, we mentioned citizenship and education several times with um, people saying, well, what could we actually do? But we don't actually have any decent citizenship education in our schools. Um, and as someone who's done canvassing for a political party, the amount of frustration I would feel um, at people really just not understanding the most basics... And it, it, it is so inherent that it almost seems to me, you know, to kind of verge on a conspiracy. Because when you think 
in Nor- Norway in that dreadful, dreadful um, massacre on an island, there were 14 to 17-year-olds yeah. in the equivalent of the Labour Party actually going, wasn't it? going to discuss politics. Mm. And the studies that have been done on um, discussions of, of citizenship and politics show that it's overwhelmingly middle-class children who get the benefit of it through discussions from their parents. So it's really, we are disenfranchising a large part of our population by not dealing with basic issues that you have been discussing, as well as the actual concrete ways that if you have complaints, who do you talk to, etc. Yeah, over to you guys. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> Um, just taking that last point first, I couldn't agree more. I think the, the cultural um, horizon for people in a certain working class um, background to sort of not talk about politics or just it to be completely unfamiliar is a huge problem in this country. And it's, it's a version of the sort of citizenship haves and have-nots, if you like. And there's a, what makes me really sad about this country is that um, but there's reason to be hopeful, is, is that some people just think that they haven't got that power of agency at all. It's not, it's not something that they want or f- because they don't feel they can have it. But I think if it is introduced to them, they can absolutely grab it by um, both shoulders and, and, and go for it. And that was the, you know, the kind of upbringing I had was very much like you don't really talk about that kind of thing, kind of knew what the political... Uh, lean was like turn off that bloody woman when Margaret Thatcher came on for example but that was about the sum of it and it was a bit embarrassing to talk about and I do think that those kind of things you know when I've talked about Brexit the best conversations I've had about Brexit have been with the mates from Hull that I went to school with and it's been a bit uncomfortable and it's usually been accompanied by a massive British sized glass of wine um, but when we've had those really good conversations, it's been really respectful and really, really great. And I've sort of learned more about those perspectives about leaving um, than in any kind of uh, fancy debate kind of thing. But getting people to a point where they think their, their, their voices matter and they have agency and that people are, want to hear them is a massive struggle and something we need to look at in terms of policy, but in terms of um, you know, social care, all of the things that have been cut in recent years. Um, we need to stop people being isolated in communities and, and do a lot more for our education um, where we can. Thank you. Tom, do you want to respond? Sure. I mean, I think this last point and what the gentleman halfway down the room was saying a kind of link, because it seems to me, yes, I mean, it's a kind of replay almost of the 1930s in as much as neoliberalism leads to fascism. I mean, social inequality, massive social inequality, creates the perfect breeding grounds for yeah, forms of fascism. And, and, and I think this is, this is kind of what happened with Brexit. And this goes hand in hand with ignorance. I think ignorance, you know, a poverty of ideas, <laughs> it, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with a poverty of material resources. I mean, we don't just live in the supermarket of stuff we can consume. You know, we, 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 our whole, everything about us is shaped by concepts, which are ideologies, which are metaphors, which are, 
you know, these things are operative at, at every level of, of, of a, a, the macro level of, of what it means to be British or to be democratic or whatever, or what it means to be a self, an individual, a individual, a citizen, and so on. And so I think these are not separate at all. They're, they're completely linked. Um, and finally, I'd say I'd concur with Shami that, yes, sport is a very, very good case study. Um, I mean, the only time of late, you know, the only time I ever feel, you know, passionately British is, is to do with sport. You know, but what are you actually watching? I mean, when you watch the England cricket team, it's, it's really interesting. You're watching basically Australians that aren't quite good enough to get in the Australian team. You know, the, the, the subcontinental diaspora of India and Pakistan... You know, think of Nasser Sain and everyone. I mean, it, it, it's like the French football team. These are very, very complex and international situations. So, so even even a national identity is always inherently international. And I think this is really kind of important. Thank you, Shami. Do you want any, any Just final to say observations? Thank you, for everyone, for giving me a post-election and everything else tonic. <laughs> this is clearly what the London Review of Books has been delivering to people. But if only we could get this conversation broader. And that, in a sense, that's what we've been trying to do in recent weeks, with some success. The spirit of this room needs to be uncorked and, and spread around. And guess what? Yeah. If we're not so clever and other people are not so stupid, they just need we just need a fair hearing and they need... A fair listening, and and it's possible. The lady who said um, isolation breeds radicalism, completely right. And there are people who want to divide and rule, and so we have to be the people that will unite and reach out, and hopefully in the end govern. And if the state isn't doing it for whatever reason at any particular time, we have to do it ourselves in our communities. I'm not going in for hijab bans and burqa bans. I'm going out for bloody coffee mornings with any woman who will take the knock on on the door right that's the feminist way that's not the racist way and i don't buy into all that french crap about the hijab ban is some kind of feminist thing no it isn't it's a dog whistle and it's really not cool right in in a nutshell and and to, to, to everyone else just 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 thank you for your hope and your commitment and your votes and whatever we we are on the edge of something we didn't we didn't win that election. But goodness me, didn't we? Didn't we suggest to a lot of people with their received wisdom and their pontificating that there might just be another way that's based on vision and values and policies and greater equality rather than divide and rule? That's what I'm. I, I'm not a career politician. I did not need to sign up for this world of pain. I really didn't. But I'm so glad I did for the experience of being in this room and for the experience of seeing the possibility of offering an alternative to, you know, the neo-fascist option that is being offered all over the world. Well, thank you, all three of you, for being our, our speakers tonight. Thank you all so much for coming. Thanks to the LRB shop for having us. We'll hang around and have a glass of wine, I think. There's wine. Yeah. Stay. Chat. Thank you again. Thank you, all of you. Good night. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.